God, thank you so much for uh, giving us the chance to meet together, to take a look at some of the things that your word says and to meditate on them, to be able to lift our voices and worship to you, God, and to be able to take a time together to remember the sacrifice that you made. Uh, thank you for the encouragement that we're able to offer each other and receive from one another. And I just thank you so much for your son, um, that you've given us the opportunity for new life and that you've given us the chance to um, have the new life here, but to extend it for eternity in an even more blessed way. So we just thank you so much, God, for all the blessings you've given us. And it's your son, Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So Derek's been preaching through the Beatitudes, which are the first portion of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And when I was a kid, I had all these Beatitudes memorized because they were very important because they were worth about 1,200 points at our summer camp. And uh, I had no idea what they really meant, but I had them memorized. And I, I would have examined the meaning probably a little more carefully, but I really needed to get those 12 apostles' names down and the books of the Bible. And my team had to win. Like, this was important stuff. And as I kind of reflect as an adult on the way that I treated Scripture when I was younger— I see that that was kind of a really bad pattern that I had. I would make New Year's resolutions to read one chapter every day, and then I would find myself at the very end of the day, I'm like just trying to keep my eyes open in bed and be like, oh, that's right. I got to read my passage. And I'd find the smallest psalm and be like, did it. Awesome. God's proud of me now. And what I've realized is that a lot of Christians— uh, that I've talked to have had kind of a similar experience with the Bible at times. Sometimes for them, the Bible is like something that they read to try to make themselves feel better or to try to please God or is almost kind of a chore or just a routine maybe. And so as we're looking at God's Word today, if you feel that that represents the way that you've uh, interacted with Scripture, I want to challenge you to try to make um, some specific changes based on the scriptures you're reading. So my question is, what actionable steps can you take after reading scripture? And there are, uh, as usual, uh, note cards in your bulletins. If you're following along and taking notes, the, the first one will be, what actionable steps can you take after reading scripture? Now, that being said, <clears throat> some scriptures don't really necessarily lend themselves to a specific action you can take. Some rather point to a, a broader knowledge of who God is. And uh, one of the most like, important and major themes in all the Bible is that our knowledge of God is crucial. In Second Peter, the apostle introduces his letter to the church by saying this, "'May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God.'" and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through our knowledge of him, who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you may be become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that's in this world." And so through our knowledge of God, we get access to all things that we need to know for life, for godliness, and for how to escape the corruption of the world. So the, the uh, first passage that was there on the screen, um, sorry, we kind of skipped over that, is 
Uh, It says this, and it's Jesus in John chapter 18. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you, um, which is going to be what our final beatitude is about. So knowing God is critical to our faith because unlike many other religions, Christianity shares with us the truth that God wants a relationship with us. He doesn't want us to just merely do things to please him. He cares individually about us, giving each of us value because he wants a relationship with each of us. Every individual person has value because of this. And the greatest human desire is to be fully known and loved anyway. Author Tim Keller uh, says this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. To be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved, well, that's a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw our way. You know, if you've read or memorized the Beatitudes before, but your reading was routine or inconsequential, I want to challenge you to dig into the meanings of these, of these different Beatitudes. And if you haven't been able to be here for Derek's sermon series leading up to this point or missed one or two, I want to just encourage you that those sermons are all available online if you guys are interested in kind of going back and viewing any that you might have missed. And if you're not sure where to navigate to find those, um, that's one of the things you could do at the next steps area at the end of service is just ask, hey, where can I find these other sermons? Because I really want to kind of catch up on that. So what are the Beatitudes? Well, the word Beatitude means blessing. And so the Beatitudes are Jesus, a list of blessings for us, which what's kind of cool about that is, or another way of understanding it, is that we can kind of get a clear picture of how we can be rewarded for the things that we do on this earth. Now, I want to be clear, of course, at Journey and uh, everyone here is so thankful that we don't have to earn our salvation. But I think in the Beatitudes, we're being kind of given a roadmap of how we can earn some rewards. This would have been especially important to um, the audience at the time for the Gospel of Matthew. You see, the Gospel of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. It was the Gospel to the Jews. And the Jews at the time especially were people who were all about, all right, what can I do right now to earn a reward to earn a blessing. And so Jesus spells this out in the sermon, and that's why I think Matthew highlights it in the way that he does. And I, I honestly feel like that impacted Jewish culture so much. I think even Jews today that have had a lot of financial success probably can attribute it to this characteristic of what can my actions be to earn the most that I can? And I think a lot of American, a lot of Americans can also relate to that idea of really want to be ambitious and try to do our best to try to earn a reward. And so I think that this is, when not greedy, it's a really healthy 
thing. And I think Jesus appeals to that, and that shows that it's kind of healthy for us to want to use our actions to earn favor. Up to this point in Derek's series, we've covered the first seven of the eight blessings in the Beatitude, and each blessing is one that we can still receive today. Um, They are timeless. They did not just apply to the original audience. We can see this in the way that the blessings are worded. Notice that Jesus addresses these blessings to people based on the characteristics that are worthy of blessing, not to a certain group of individuals at that time. And so our final um, beatitude is in Matthew 5, verses 10 through 11. And those verses say this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your, war, your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So we see this is really a two-part blessing. Now most of the other blessings were two, one group. This is really like a two-part blessing. He's saying, blessed are you when you're persecuted for living the right way for living in God's way. You're just persecuted for that. And blessed are you when you are living the right way, but people, instead of persecuting you for the right things you're doing, they make up wrong things and make it appear as though you're doing evil. And so the original text uh, really gives us a clearer picture of what this means if we look at the word persecute. Um, to really fully get this idea down. And so to me, when I think about kind of digging in and trying to figure out the meaning of a passage, I want to see what was originally written and make sure that English doesn't take anything away from that, right? So the Greek word that it was originally used, the root of the word that was used in this passage is the Greek word dioko, which means to eagerly pursue and follow with malevolent intent. So we imagine someone seeking after us to create harm in our lives. I think that that probably can make it so that we can eliminate persecution um, from things like someone, you know, uh, maybe saying something about the cross decal on our car. I don't think that would qualify as someone eagerly pursuing us with malevolent intent. So sometimes I think Christians in America can see ourselves as victims a little too easily. And I think that's because of our expectations rather than because of our experiences. I often hear Christians say things like, well, this is a Christian nation founded on Christian principles and it's just fallen by the wayside or or, we're under attack in America right now. And to me, that reveals that many Christians expect our country to be sort of a safe haven for Christians. Because even though we understand that people are going to reject Jesus' offer of salvation, for some reason, I think some, some people in the church as a whole in our nation think, well, yeah, but they shouldn't reject our teaching of Jesus' teachings. Like, but that's not something we should necessarily expect. So I think we need to have our expectations align with what the Bible tells us more than what we may naturally think based on our understanding of American history. And I think that those expectations, if they're false, can be more dangerous than we realize. And if we change them based on Scripture, I think we'll move away from victimhood 
or defensiveness, more towards a posture of preparedness and expectancy. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also might rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now, shortly after Peter wrote the passage, Christians literally were put in trial by fire. He says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. And interestingly, you know, Christians were brought into the Colosseum and Colosseums of Rome, and they were given a choice. We will burn you at the stake, saying that you're following Jesus Christ, or you can deny Christ, and you won't be burned. We'll just send you home. And so this verse had an immediate impact on what was to come. But we also noticed that the author of this passage was Peter. Now remember that Peter's posture towards persecution was so defensive that when Jesus was being brought in for questioning in the Garden of Gethsemane, he drew a sword and lopped off the ear of one of the soldiers. And so we see how Jesus' teaching changed Peter's posture towards persecution. Now he's saying, rejoice! (laughs) So going from drawing the sword you know, I will die to, okay, I'm going to rejoice at my persecution. So what kind of persecution should we expect and be prepared for in the context that we're in now in America in 2021? Well, in order to answer this question, let's look again at what those verses say. First, it says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. So what is the church doing right now in 2021 for the sake of righteousness, for trying to preserve God's right way. There are a few things that come to mind for me, and I'm sure that there are others that will come to mind for you. So if you're taking notes, maybe jot down in the margin some other ideas that you have of what we can, why we might expect to be persecuted. It might be a good conversation uh, later this afternoon with someone. So the first thing that I noticed, and I'll, I'll say that I'm going to have some blanks in the outline if you're following along. Uh, I'm just going to go through these really quickly, and then we'll kind of dive into each one a little bit more. So if you're like, whoa, you're moving too fast. I'm trying to take notes. No worries. First one is that Christians are trying to preserve the gender roles and distinctions that God defines for us in his word. So this is something that the church is trying to do for righteousness' sake. Thing is that Christians are trying to preserve the right to assemble together without being penalized by their workplaces or athletic programs. And the third is that Christians are trying to avoid being taxed more for being Christians. So those are some things I think that we're doing for righteousness sake so that we can use our resources more wisely. And I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more in a moment. The other part is blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Christians are trying to avoid being seen or labeled in such a way that will undermine our credibility and our influence and our ability to perform our duties as kingdom citizens. So I want to just kind of zoom into each of these ideas a little bit more to clarify so that we can set our expectations. First, Christians are trying to preserve the gender roles and distinctions that God defines for us in his, in his word. In the world today, 
I think people often make the mistake of jumping to the assumption that God and his church are anti-LGBT people. And I think that's a mistake. You know, rather, I think the, the agenda of the LGBT movement moves in opposition to God's teachings. In other words, the biblical teachings of Christians are not persecuting the LGBT community. Christians are not, or certainly should not be, seeking after, diligently pursuing members of the LGBT community with malevolent intent. God offers salvation to all people. His love for humanity is always extended, but often rejected by people who reject his ways. The Bible teaches us through Paul's first letter to Timothy that Christians should pray for all people and that Jesus and that God desires for all people to be saved. So this passage is 1 Timothy 2 and verses 1 through 4 say this, First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and is pleasing in the sight of our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So if God's attitude towards humanity is that he wants all of us to be saved and he's extending that offer to everyone, why am I saying that we should expect to be having increased persecution from the LGBT community? I believe we can expect this because God's word teaches several things that the LGBT community not only rejects, but also strongly opposes. God's, teach, God's word teaches us that a marriage should be between one man and one wife. It teaches us that there are specific gender roles that we should have for people, whether they're married, in the community, in the church, single. All, all of these things are, are not in line with what LGBT community believes. In addition, the Bible teaches that men and women should not try to alter their appearance, to try to appear as the gender that they're not. And so these teachings are actually abhorred by the LGBT community, and often they're rarely tolerated. And so after writing this part of the sermon, I learned about a story that happened this week in British Columbia that was just mind-boggling to me. So there was a man whose daughter um, was 14 years old, and she was in the school system, and she went to a counselor for maybe anxiety or something like that, and, and the counselor was like, well, have you considered that it could be this? And uh, so she's like, okay. So she takes, starts taking like hormone therapy and decides that she's a boy, and her dad learns about this later. It was all done against his will. He had no knowledge of it. And he's like, hold on, I feel like you're stealing my daughter away. This is a 14-year-old girl, and you're, you, you didn't even let me know what's going on? And they're like, uh, that's a 14-year-old boy, sir. And he's like, uh, no, she is a girl. He wouldn't use the pronouns that they said you need to use. And this is where it blew my mind. I, I, my mind would have been blown if he got fined for this or, or something. But he literally was put in prison. So that was this week in British Columbia. I'm like, that is mind-boggling. Also, they made it so that he um, basically couldn't talk to any media outlets 
or he would face a greater penalty. So you can check that story out. But um, that's the type of, uh, of attack that I think we can expect and be prepared for. The second thing is that Christians are trying to preserve the right to assemble without being penalized by their workplaces or athletic programs. Now, most churches still follow the biblical pattern of meeting together on the first day of the week. And it used to be considered kind of uncouth or irresponsible to schedule events or um, to schedule um, Christians for shifts that they couldn't, like, switch out of on a Sunday morning. But this is no longer the case. As a matter of fact, many Christians face uh, penalties if they wish to attend churches on Sunday mornings. Um, it might be a sports team that says, hey, if you're not at this practice, you can't play in the game. Or it might be a job that says, hey, if you're not available, you're not even going to be hired. Or if you're not available, you're going to be fired. Um, I know in the service industry, I was working in ministry bivocationally, and I was working as a fine dining server, and I, I experienced some interviews where people said, hey, listen, if you're not available on Sunday mornings, we, we don't have a spot for you. Um, we're just not interested in trying to work around your religious schedule uh, conflicts. And so I, I think this is a more of a, a minor, you know, form of persecution, but it's still very significant because Hebrews 10, 23 and, and 24 and 25 remind us that it's really crucial that we meet together. And I think we sometimes as a culture, because of those expectations that are, exist outside of the church, it almost lessens our um, importance of being together, I think. So it says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let's consider different ways to stir each other on, spur each other on to good works and to different ways of loving each other. Not neglecting to meet together like some people are already doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you, say the, as you see the end drawing near. And so he's saying, hey, don't neglect meeting together. And we have people outside forces saying, hey, neglect meeting together. Christians are also trying to be, uh, avoid being taxed more for being Christians. Uh, I feel like this one probably might raise a little bit of eyebrows like, wait, what? Are, are we in like an Islamic state here? We're like having to pay an additional tax? What's going on? I haven't heard about this. But what I mean is, that, is just simply this. Christian churches are tax exempt for a reason. They're not businesses. We're not businesses seeking to make profit. We're a group of already taxed people who are meeting together to read and study scripture, to encourage one another, to remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us, to hold each other accountable and that doesn't profit us financially. <laughs> you know, we're not here exchanging goods. But more and more, the church is viewed as some sort of political organization or a business that should not receive tax exemption. If the church is no longer tax exempt, it will mean that Christians are taxed in addition, an additional amount that other non-Christians are, are. So I think that's a significant point. The fourth thing I mentioned is that Christians are trying to avoid being labeled in a way that undermines our credibility, influence, and ability to perform our duties as kingdom citizens. And I think this happens in a number of ways. I mean, I, I'm sure that we've all seen this. You know, we've all been probably insulted with some of these insults for um, refusing to bow to human autonomy and human choice. We're often called bigots. Because we hold traditional values 
and we take a hard stand against communism and anything that looks like it, sometimes no matter what our uh, political affiliation, we're viewed as far-right or nativist, only caring about Americans and, and fascist even by political extremists. In the past couple of years, the church has also come under fire, and I don't know about you guys, but I think a lot of people in the church have been called racist, which blows my mind. So uh, there's, there's been this big push in the public school system to be anti-racist, and um, the desire of our culture, so we're told, is to end racism. But the church... <laughs> has been um, spearheading the movement to end racism for a very long time, saying, hey, the only difference between races is just skin pigmentation. We're all one human race, descended from Adam and Eve. So we've been preaching this message for forever in the church that we should be anti-racist. Yet, how then are we considered racist? Well, because we haven't necessarily cast all of our support behind organizations that also have other affiliations. So while we can say, oh, there's an anti-racist portion of your beliefs, we agree. But we don't agree with socialist philosophies. We don't agree with LGBT movement affiliations. We don't agree with some people, some races, or some skin pigmentations being taxed more to pay reparations to others. We don't necessarily agree with these things. When I was becoming certified for teaching, I had to undergo a diversity um, conference that I was required to attend for one of my classes, and one of the speakers was a leading anti-racist speaker named Angie Thomas. She authored the book The Hate You Give, which then became a movie, and all the schools that I knew of pretty much were all taking their kids on, on field trips to go see this movie. And this speaker was going on, and she's talking about how we need to, you know, be more aware of racial differences. And at the end, she said, I, I want to be clear. Um, she had kind of gone off on this side tangent. She's like, I want to be clear. I'm not advocating that we assassinate then-President Donald Trump. I, I want to be clear of that. But, she said, if you see me afterwards, I can be more candid, and maybe we can brainstorm some ways. I was like, this is mandatory for me to become a teacher in the United States, to hear someone say, hey, let's collaborate here on how to get rid of the president. I'm like, what? How, what does that have to do with race at that point? And yet the church, if they don't accept this and fall in line with it, can be called racist. That blows my mind. I think Christians are also labeled as hypocrites, maybe more than anything else, because we teach love, but we don't always accept every behavior, and the world often associates love only with acceptance. Or because sometimes the church hasn't always shown grace and they've judged people's actions and people then assume because some part of the church somewhere was not gracious to them that all Christians need to live virtually morally perfect lives. And if they don't, they're hypocritical. And so I think, um, I think we get a lot of different names thrown at us. Bigots, fascists, racists all these different things. I also think lately, we've gotten another little tag. We're, we're sometimes referred to as Trumpites. This drives me crazy because the church as a whole, I think, did a pretty good job of saying, hey, hold on here. Um, we're, we've been really critical of Trump's character flaws, some of his verbiage and some of his tone, but the church has been around for 2,000 years. That's a lot longer than Donald Trump. So hold on. We're not just this political group here. Like, what's going on here? So I think we get these labels, and they undermine our credibility. 
And I think that's intentional. So those are some of the, the things that we face today. But <clears throat> these abuses are nothing in contrast to some of the abuses that are happening worldwide to churches that are actual persecution. Actual persecution, I say, because those are minimal types of persecution compared to people who are eagerly pursuing, right? That was the definition, with malevolent intent, intent to harm. According to the Christian Persecution Tracking Organization, the Esther Project, 70 million Christians have been martyred since Jesus. And according to the organization Open Doors, 322 Christians are killed for their faith every month. 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed every month. 214. I think about this cool story that Journey has of how this building came to be and take shape after the years that, uh, that, you, that many of you here spent in the, in the um, movie theater and everything. And I'm like, man, this is such a cool story, right? 214 of those stories torn down every month. Not year, month. 772 forms of violence are carried out against Christians every single month. According to the organization Aid to the Church in Need, at least 75% of all religiously motivated violence and oppression is suffered by Christians. And in the past decade, the number of countries that are hostile towards Christianity has steadily increased. Maybe the biggest statistic that should surprise us is that 340 million Christians in the world today are faced with persecution. Just to put that in contrast, that's more than the population of the United States. More Christians are currently being persecuted than the population of the United States. One out of every eight. So what does that really mean for us today? What, what can we do? How do we respond to this information? Well, I've got three final takeaways, and then we'll wrap it up with some scripture. The first, and I think most important, is this. We need to expect persecution without fearing it. This life is extremely temporary, and we need to remember that our reward is eternal. Think for a moment of this. Jesus paid the ultimate sacrifice. He was ultimately more persecuted than anyone, and yet the payoff for what he did was worth the persecution in his mind, right? If he was willing to be persecuted for a payoff that was worth it, do you think really that he would make us endure a persecution that's not worth the payoff? So even for the Christians who are being beheaded on live stream, whatever the persecution is that they're facing is not going to be greater than the reward that they get. It's so hard for us to realize that in this moment. I mean, imagine if one of our church members or our church family was being tortured or, or was beheaded on live stream, I think we would be going nuts. But think about this. I mean, I'm not saying that we should be like, oh, that's fine. But think about this. This life is so short. The Bible says it's like a vapor. But our blessing that God's going to give us, whatever that looks like, we don't know exactly, is going to be more than worth whatever that was because it's all of eternal that blessing will last. That makes me almost wish like, it, it makes me almost wish, go ahead and persecute us, world. You know? Go ahead and persecute us because the blessing will be worth it. Hebrews 10, 32 through 36 says this, But recall the former days after you were enlightened. You were endured a hard struggle. 
people with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those that were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Like, okay. Because you knew that you yourselves had better an abiding one in heaven. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The second thing is that we need to try to recognize why we're about to face increasing hostility and try to represent Christ clearly so that slanderous lies about the church are seen by other non-Christians, and I think this is likely to draw people to the church. I mean, maybe you have watched a sports game. This is a really kind of a poor analogy, maybe. But, and you've seen a team that gets like all these unfair calls. And maybe you don't really have a, a dog in the fight, so to speak. And you're like, I don't really know who I want to win. But these people that are taking all the bad calls, like I want them to win now. Or maybe you've seen someone that suffered something that they didn't deserve or maybe was gossiped about. And it wasn't, it turned out to be like a false accusation. I think when we see those people, we're automatically drawn to them like, oh man, I feel so bad that injustice has occurred to you. And when persecution comes our way, the church has an opportunity to shine through that. If we, we re- react in vic- with like a sense of victimhood or defensiveness, we lose that opportunity. But what a great opportunity that is because what, what more important thing that we have to do in this earth than to represent Christ and draw others to him. So if persecution is an opportunity for that, that's another reason to welcome it. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away and new life has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciling people to him. And it goes on to say that we're Christ's ambassadors, he, his representation, so that he can deliver a message of reconciliation through us. And lastly, we need to be generous to persecuted Christians, and to become more aware of their needs. One of the cool organizations that Journey supports is an organization called the Voice of the Martyrs. And this organization helps more than 4 million persecuted Christians in more than 70 hostile or restricted countries. I think it's imperative that we do our part while we're less persecuted than other places to help those in need. Many people have no idea what's happening. They have no idea that 200 and some Christians are being killed for their faith every month. We're so fixated in America on whatever one person that gets the spotlight, right? We get one story of someone being wrongfully killed and it's like everyone's talking about it for like a year. But yet 220 some people are killed for their faith every month. We need to raise awareness of that. So let's close the message today by looking at one more passage together. 2 Timothy 3 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Jesus will be persecuted. Evil people and imposters will go from bad to even worse, deceiving people and being deceived themselves. But you continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which were able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God in for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the men of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
Thank you guys for uh, letting me uh, speak to you today, and I hope that something in that message um, just stuck with you in a way that will help you to uh, think about a scripture more or um, be more prepared for come. And, uh, and, and also, as much as I'm like, oh no, persecution is to come, please remember God's reward for those who are persecuted for his righteousness sake or wrongfully accused, the reward will be great enough. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for allowing us to be saved by you, to be allowed to have complete hope and trust and confidence in you so that we know that no matter what we have to endure here, you will be the great God of justice and the great God of love and reward. Thank you for spelling out different ways that we could be rewarded by you in your scripture. Thank you for allowing us to gather together and not have to do this alone. We see so many stories that Paul had where he's alone suffering. God, I pray that you'd help us to remember not to abandon each other uh, to suffer alone, but that you'd help us to be prepared. And God, I pray that you'd help us have generous hearts, that you'd help us to have um, the financial ability to help those who are being persecuted severely. We love you and we thank you so much for your sacrifice and your gift of heaven. Amen.